Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. Rich Aitken is a music and sound mixer who's worked on games and films. Most recently, he mixed the score and mastered the soundtrack for Horizon Zero Dawn. And while Rich is also a composer, the music you'll hear in this episode mostly comes from music he mixed written by other people. Having said that, listening to Rich's mixing work in this podcast isn't a fair representation of what he adds to music, just because of all the things audio goes through to actually make a podcast. So there will be links on our site where you can hear high or higher quality audio of his work. To start off, I asked Rich to explain what it is that he does. The interesting thing about that question is, is that the answer has changed depending on what year you ask me. Hmm. So I've been doing it professionally since about 94, 95, mm-hmm. and, and, and had done it, you know, for eight or 10 years before that as, as kind of a hobby and then as a paid hobby. But the role maybe back in the 90s was really a, quite, a fairly artistic role, but a fairly technical role involving expensive equipment. And it was really just about actually trying to realize composers and musicians' vision for a recording and bring it to fruition completely because they would have one, very little understanding and two, very little experience in doing both of those things. But as time has evolved, uh, composers and musicians are now doing a heck of a lot of recording themselves. You know, they've all got Pro Tools rigs or Cubase rigs or or Reaper or whatever at home, which are various recording systems that, that we use. And my job has much more become about taking where they leave off. So they've written some music and recorded some music and evolving it to add a bit more of emotional depth or um, to make it communicate to people on a more emotive level. The second part of the job is actually making sure that a mix doesn't just sound good on the device that you mixed it on or in the on the set of speakers you mixed it on. It has to be what we call translatable. So if I mix it in my studio, because my studio is set up in a certain way, I can be sure it'll sound good on an iPhone, it'll sound good on most TVs, it'll sound good in a cinema. You're kind of trying to perform a technical exercise of making what you do translatable to an array of speakers. Where my role is distinct from mastering is I'm involved in a very, very grassroots, hands-on level of, of the music. So it's if it was an orchestra, for example, it might be loads of tracks, channels of recording of violins, violas, cello, trumpets, double basses, all that kind of stuff. And I am in charge of bringing those instruments together. Somewhat, I'm also in charge of how that stuff gets recorded or even how that's performed. And in my role as a producer, I work in contracting conductors, musicians, studio personnel and all of the manner of stuff. Mastering is taking that finished mix and as a last port of call, making it ready for final product use. That tends to be the mainstay of soundtracks and commercial music. So music for film, video games or TV doesn't tend to need mastering. (laughs) They tend to take my final mix and then they go into what's called a dubbing suite and they'll put all the dialogue, sound effects, recordings from the real world, in there or in the case of video games adding special effects and vo recording sessions Mm -hmm. so um i'm specifically mostly involved in the music side of stuff i do do some sound design mixing but uh it's very much about these days it's about taking what a composer and a set of musicians have done and saying what more can i bring to this how can i enhance that emotional experience and how can i improve 
the um, Sonic experience for the end user, and in video games, the end user is the game player. you brought that up about making sure it sounds good on more than one device because that that's a, a common kind of misstep right for mm. people who are who are mixing their own things and have not really been trained or thought that far ahead right yeah absolutely um the thing i i find these days is i i get sent a lot of reference mixes by people which i can hear that the artistic content in what they've done is great you know it's it, it's there and i understand what they're trying to do 15 years ago, I would have sent very rough mixes and I'd have to think, well, how are we going to, what, what are we going to do with it? And it would be a lot of intense dialogues with the composer and musicians. Now I can listen to their guide mix and go, I see what you're trying to do. I think I can do that a little bit better, a little bit clearer, a little bit more euphonic. So that same process of people, what you might consider making a mistake and maybe not mixing right, actually gives me a lot of artistic information. And I can spend more of my time making sure that that artistic information translates into technical information as well, so that that mix sounds great on a number of devices. It's actually a really good thing that composers are doing a lot of self-mixing now. So it's, it's one, it's raised my game. Two, mm -hmm. it allows me a good starting point to know what they're intending rather than it being endless emails or telephone calls. Right, because I'm sure they're, you know, bringing out the things they want to be sure are brought out and, and things like that. So then you can just go through and make it sound even better. Hopefully, and sometimes <laughs> uh, occasionally take a view on it as well. You know, someone, sometimes composers very much come to me going, I've backed myself into a corner here and I don't know where it's going. Sometimes I go look at, you know, I listen to what they've done and go, this is great what you're talking about you just can't hear it anymore because you've heard it too many times let's mm. just do a few tweaks other times it's like ah right i understand okay you've you've got a load of mid-range build up here or you can't hear the lead lines because actually the whole mix is too loud maybe just some simple automation will work and other times it's actually just taking a complete view and giving a uh, a full artistic kind of input for someone who's maybe sort of might have lost their way on their on their piece of music a little bit and just needs even just, you know, a set of reflective fingers, if you see what I mean. <laughs> so you had mentioned, and we we don't obviously need to mention specifically what project it was, but you, you had mentioned that you did a mix and then the client wanted you to redo it. And then they actually liked the first version. So I'm curious <laughs> how, what you changed between version one or two. So let's just say it was an orchestra. Uh, what are some things you would do differently to offer some kind of second mix that's different enough from the first mix to sound different. Do you know what I'm asking? I do know what you're asking, yeah. yeah. Um, it's rare that clients go for the first mix. There's probably okay. a multitudinous number of reasons for that. It might be sort of reasons of wanting to have a have input, and, and I think that's a valid reason, you know, to, to get to get emotive sign-off from your clients that they feel they've contributed. Uh, let me put an aside in here. I consider a mix to be a collaborative process. I need my clients to reflect on what I do. Sure. It's not me going, this is how it should sound. That'll be silly. I enjoy the process, and I think it's valuable that there is investment from the composer and the musician and possibly the producer, that they are invested in the mixing process. So that dialogue is important. However, I can answer your main question by giving you examples of the kind of feedback I tend to get. It usually is things like, can we make it sound bigger? Can we make it sound smaller? Can we make it sound more punchy? Can we make it sound less punchy? Can it be more ambient? 
So that's the broadband sort of things people will say. Mm-hmm. And then the more exact things will be, I can't hear the second ostinato on the oboe in, in the third bar or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or very much pull back the percussion. I really want to hear the percussion hitting. And my favorite bit of critique ever is, uh, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it into an orchestral one, can we have a bit more percussion, strings, brass, woodwind, and solo, please? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's the best thing ever. <laughs> more of everything. The thing is, I understand what they mean by that. What they don't mean is just turn it up. That's not actually what they mean. What they mean is when a percussion hits hits hard, they want it to really hit hard. And then that string flurry afterwards, they want to really hear that. So really to solve those kind of things is just a lot more automation. And for those who don't know what that is, automation is it's computer-controlled movements within the sliders on the mixing desk or in the Pro Tools system, whatever, which means I tell the computer how to turn up the violin and it does it automatically so I don't have to keep moving my hands around on sliders. Automation is the mainstay of modern recording. It it was something that eight or nine people would sit around the mixing desk for 35, 40 years ago, but now we get a computer just to record your movements. Now, you compose as well, and you have for many years, and so I'm curious how this was the track you ended up in. I know you were in bands when you were younger and all that kind of stuff, so what drew you to mixing? Initially, what drew me to mixing was I didn't feel the people I was working with understood what I was trying to do, and I think you'll find that's a common answer from people who were in bands who've gravitated towards production and mixing. (laughs) I didn't feel the the guys I was working with, I signed to EMI in the mid-90s as a a writer in a band called Narco. And we were a sort of electro-rock drum and bass outfit years before it was cool. It's like being in a punk band in 1971 at the height of pretty pop music or something. And... uh, I felt at that time, I was wrong, actually. All I needed to do was maybe try and find the right people to work with. But the people I was working with at the time, I didn't feel were understanding what I wanted to do. I wanted to hear distortions where they were going, no, no, it needs to be really clear and all Mm. all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted to push stuff. So I got into it myself and made a complete mess of it. (laughs) When I signed to EMI, I bought a Pro Tools rig. It's probably one of the first half dozen people to buy Pro Tools in the UK. Hmm. Once people heard that I had Pro Tools, I started to get asked to do things like edit a vocal or do a shortened version of a track or something for pop musicians, basically. Mm -hmm. And that slowly evolved into recording and mixing and running a small studio once I realized that I wasn't going to be an uber rock star. Sort of just fell into it from there, really. And I guess like anything, once you find something that you like doing, you kind of keep going with it, don't you? Yes, Yes. Yeah. You probably spend a lot of time listening to the same things over and over again when you're working on a project. So how do you combat listening fatigue and making sure that you're not getting trapped like you were mentioning your clients sometimes do, where they've heard it too much? You don't listen. Um, <laughs> I guess it's that simple. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really kind of like, no way, mate. <laughs> um, so, no, you don't listen in that same way. If I was to sit listening really closely all of the time, and listening to it always as a journey of music, uh, 
I wouldn't be able to make decisions based on technical elements or even placement elements. So what what you do? I mean, when I was younger, when I you know in in the nineties, I very much did get listener fatigue. I have a load of strategies now, and one of them is that same thing. If you can imagine when someone's giving you a a lecture in a lecture theatre, and you just kind of start looking out the window at the people playing football on the field. Mm. And you're still hearing them. And when they say, Aitken, what are you doing? You understand that and you hear it. And you're hearing points waft across to you. But that very distraction means you're only hearing the overall tonality mm-hmm. of what's going on. So I do things like grab a cup of tea, go and stand at the front door and listen to it from there and, and, and just watch other things. And when something grabs me, it's either really right or really wrong. Sure. And you can make that decision fairly quickly. Other times it's about sitting in front of the speakers and don't listen if you don't have to. You know, if you're not solving a problem, don't just play the track for the hell of it. If you're playing it to go, what shall I do now? You've probably not listened to the track in the first place and given yourself a mental list of what you need to do from the beginning. So maybe if I run through a very, very quick process of how I mix something just now, maybe that'll give you an idea of how I don't get bored. So what I do is the client sends me this stuff. I load it up on my computer these days. Used to be tape machines, obviously, years ago. And I'll pull all the faders down. I have a control surface, so I'm not using the mouse. I actually have a load of faders which which represent all the faders on screen. So I pull them all down so nothing's coming out. And then I just bring them all up a little bit and listen to what's going on. And things that are immediately too loud, I turn down straight away. Things that are too quiet, I turn up. I get a very quick balance within 10 minutes just to get to understand the track. Then I press stop. And I have a number of processes I always go through. I understand sort of what reverbs I'm going to use on this, on a mix, even just by listening to the tune. Mm -hmm. And I'll walk away, make a cup of tea, come back and very, very quickly group similar instruments together without listening to the whole track and just pull them together so that all the percussion, for example, is at one end of my session and it's colored brown and the sub bass stuff is all colored purple and the strings are all colored green and the synths are all colored turquoise or what have you. Mm -hmm. And I'll just group them together. And then I'll start to form a relationship within groups. After that, I'll then go, I'll have 10 or 12 groups, and then I'll get a rough balance of the 10 or 12 groups. And that will give me, within about an hour, an overall picture of the track. And I've only listened to it maybe a dozen times. It's then that I start to go, right, let's listen to this piece of music and then just make some notes. So I form a list on one listen, and there's usually between 10 and 50 things I write down. And let's go through those 50 things without listening to the music, particularly just going, right, what did I say? Third bar, the violin was really shrill. Okay, third bar, go in, look at the violin, stop the violin from being shrill, but don't pay too much attention to the music. Otherwise, I'm losing my objective ear. Do all that list, stop, take a break, go outside, walk in the forest. I'm lucky that my studio is in a forest, by the way. That's a nice thing. (laughs) come back in press play i've almost got a first listen back again because i've been outside listening to birds and forgotten the piece of music so i then make notes again and this iterative process allows me to have an opinion which feels a lot more like a first opinion which is how you want to hear music so you want to know if it's any good or not and years of doing it that have given me the ability to walk away and feel fresh to it if you see what i mean
One of the most recent projects you've worked on is Horizon Zero Dawn, and that game has mm -hmm. been getting ridiculously just wonderful reviews. And uh, what was your work like on that game? Was that soundtrack mixing or sound design mixing? What 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 was your role? I um, <laughs> it started off as uh, two about two years ago with uh, one of the composers, Yoris Deman, who I worked with on. Killzone many years ago. Right. Phone me up and saying, "Can you come and record some flutes for me? Because I don't know what I'm doing." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, okay, all right, we'll do that." And it just progressed over the past two years into actually you're mixing the score. And by the way, can you master the score for the soundtrack album as well? <laughs> so what started as a very small bit of work ballooned into hours and hours of music, and I'm spending time in studios in London recording strings and, and, and various bits and bobs over that time as well just a big mix job was the main part of it but then some recording work and mastering the soundtrack album which uh, was a great surprise and the phone call i got from sony was because uh, there was uh five composers in all no four composers there was the flight there was a percussion circle percussion group in the netherlands and there was Joris Deman, and there was jonathan williams who wrote the choral pieces okay and a couple of performers as well and uh, they said, actually, nobody knows the music as well as you do. Can you master it? Because you're the only person who understands what they're all doing. And I went, <laughs> okay, if you trust me that much, fair enough, I'll do it. So, uh, also, you know, you mentioned Killzone uh, Driver. Many years ago, you worked on the Driver series. You worked on Infamous Second Son, one of my favorite uh, PS4 games so far, and all kinds of things. And, of course, addition to a another lengthy list of films. So, I am certain you've answered this question a million times, but I'd love to hear you talk about the difference between mixing for a film or mixing for a game. I don't think there's any difference in terms of the logistics and technical side. Mm -hmm. I think there is a slight difference in the creative and artistic side purely because of the linearity of film versus the non-linearity of games. However, games do have some linear content with the cutscenes, obviously. Yeah. So cutscene mixing is like mixing a film, but there's a little bit less continuity in film mixing. Uh, there's quite often a lot of the music cues bleed into each other, so... It's a little bit different from that. The main bit that's different is the in-game music where, and I think the bigger challenge is actually on the composers, because with today's sort of interactive scores, you're often writing huge phrases of single emotion. You don't really get that so much in film. You Even on an action cue, there'll be a ramp up and a ramp down. And with games, you might have several layers that you want to move between, or you might want to go, oh, let's quickly grab this bit because that's hyperdramatic and this bit's more tense. So you're writing, the composers are writing more fractious pieces. If they're wise, they'll actually write a 10-minute piece of music that's got lots of emotional content in, and you'll edit from that 10-minute piece of music. But that's actually, I don't get delivered many of those. I tend to get delivered, here's the 172 bits that we need, and they're all 16 bars long, and that's that's quite a challenge. Films don't do that so much, and cutscenes don't do that so much. So the technical differences are negligible. I would say that there's only live recordings on the higher end games, the more the games with the bigger budgets. Whereas in films, even films of budgets of a million dollars tend to have quite a bit of musician input and, and, and more traditional 
recordings techniques. So it's a lot of people having to do it themselves on the on the smaller budget games, I would say. Mm. Whereas, I mean, I don't tend to get a look in the games that have only got a couple of hundred thousand pound budgets. Mm-hmm. Whereas films, I still will. They'll knock me down to three days on low budget rates, but <laughs> I'm still involved because they still want what I do on their project. So there tends to be a different level of jump off in when you would hire someone rather than being a particularly different set of techniques for mixing. So over the years, what have uh, been some of your favorite projects? I really, really enjoyed Far Cry 2. Yeah. I really immersed myself in the story and I enjoyed the contextual element of the story that was given to me. I know the game didn't quite pan out to be exactly the same as how the sort of the story was evolved to me, but I thought it was such a great thing, you know, this whole sort of African smuggler kind of thing and, and set up and working with different factions. And the music that Mark Cannon wrote for that, I think now is, you know, you get a lot of music like that, but he was ahead of the curve and he wasn't going for big bombastic stuff. He was going for, it was a string sextet we recorded and it was lots of genuine African rhythms. Mark and his assistants researched lots of different rhythms from different parts of uh, Central Africa. They worked with Baba Mal on recording some fantastic vocals, and they really went out all and all out for a genuine African music experience, African folk music experience, and then brought that into a sort of semi-film scoreish nature, if you like. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't big and bombastic, and it wasn't about using, you know, the most sub-bass we can get. So it was very much a small score, and I think at the time he was ahead of the curve. Obviously enjoyed Driver. I'm deeply associated with Driver. I've always loved doing Driver. <laughs> so <laughs> so Driver fun. 3 was a big gig. That yeah. was mad. That was like the, because what's that, 2003, 2004 is that? 2003, I think we were doing my Yeah, sometime around, around there, yeah. That's the 80s of video games. That's where the decadence was in full <laughs> swing. And we were working with Atari at the time and we were partnering up with Sony Records and they they flew us out to Los Angeles and put us up in top-end hotels and drove wow. us around in limos. <laughs> That's a different world. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, a game like Driver has licensed music in it, right? Yeah, that's right. Are you touching any of that at all or are you just dealing with the score yeah. elements? No. For Driver and for several other games during that, Around that time, um, I, I was running a company called Nimrod, and one of our major components was finding licensing solutions for the games industry at a time where most video game companies did not have licensing departments. Now, Sony, Ubisoft, and all those people now have big music departments. Definitely. They didn't at that time. Me and my business partner had come from the record industry. We understood the licensing process very, very simply and easily. And so we would just go and use my record label contacts and just go and get decent rates for games. So we got a set of artists on Driver 3 for a price that would be absolutely impossible now. Hmm. 
So that's why I mean, Driver Three soundtrack. Love or hate the game, the soundtrack in terms of the licensed music is fantastic. It's Iggy Pop, it's the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, it's yep. the Teddy Bears, it's all these cool, cooler than cool bands. <laughs> yeah. Which Martin Edmondson, to his credit, the game director and the owner of Reflections at the time, he knows his music and he knows what he likes. We, we put together the coolest playlist of music you could have on a game. The company I've been running for many years is called Nimrod Productions. It's actually um, being replaced by a new company called Nimrod Sound, which is uh, way more focused on just being a mixing facility for other people's enterprises, whereas Nimrod Productions focused on video games. Oh. I run another company called Score Mix, which is all about teaching composers how to mix score and how to mix soundtrack music. There's a lot of facilities out there to learn how to mix pop music. There's scant information on how to mix film score or video game score hmm. so um come and say hi on facebook it's called cool. we've got a little facebook group called score mix and that is slowly evolving into a, a set of videos and uh, i am me a mixer as well you know i use my studio facility for mixing film score and uh, i go out as just me and tend to work for composers if any composers want to come and say hi please do just come and visit nimrod productions or nimrod sound as it now is nimrodsound.com and drop me a line say hello always pleased to hear from composers i like to hear what they're doing even if they don't hire me well rich thank you so much for all the information and and education you gave us today i really very much appreciate it it was nice to finally get a chance to talk with you it's been great talking with you emily uh, stay in touch i'd love to speak to you again soon Thank you for listening to episode 65 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Rich Aitken and see a playlist at patreon.com level. And check out Rich's Facebook group at ScoreMix if you're interested in learning more about mixing scores. Hey, you know who our mixer is? It's Sam Keenan. Say hi, Sam. Yeah. I'm Emily Reese. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated. Learn more at june-media.com. And remember, June is J-O-O-N.